One night when uh, Judy and Howard were in prison, I was at a party sort of stuffing myself with cheesecake and pie. And I started talking with this rather eccentric, rather dizzy older woman. I guess she was drunk. I know I was. She looked like she didn't go to parties all that often, and the outfit she wore was somewhat bizarre. All of a sudden, I had a blinding intuition. Wait, you're Joan, I suddenly said, and I was absolutely right. Isn't that amazing? It was the legendary Joan. And because we were drunk, we had a long, frank talk. And at one point she asked me, well, what was your problem with Howard, basically? I don't know, I said. I guess it was how much I hated him, really. Yes, exactly. That was my problem, too. She heartily agreed. To be quite frank, one has to say those were not bad years for a lot of people. A lot of people were getting by not doing that badly or even doing a bit better than that. I myself had a pretty good job. I wrote a column on sex for the morning urinal, as everyone absolutely insisted on calling it. It wasn't really such a terrible paper, but everyone just loved to make fun of it for some reason. It showed people's boldly independent spirits, I suppose. After all he'd gone through, Poor Howard didn't get to celebrate much after he got out of prison. Actually, it might seem to be, you know, a little absurd to lock somebody up for five years and then have someone come to his house and shoot him, all basically because of a couple of essays he'd written several decades before. But you have to understand that no one person plans these things. Person A decides the first thing. Person B decides the second. You know, I mean, that's just how it works. Someone had a fetish about mealtime shootings, one is bound to conclude. He was sitting at a table in his bedroom, and Judy had just brought him a plate of cold meat and salad. And just as in all the descriptions one had heard a thousand times, it was, don't get up, the guy walking behind him, the hole blasted into the back of his head, the blood pouring endlessly onto the plate. When I learned about it, I went over, of course, to see Judy. A month later, she sold the house, and I went over again to help her pack things up. Oh, my God, that whole thing of moving, so depressing. The sale of effects, the garage cleaned, even the oil stains partially removed by some new process. The books in boxes carried down the stairs, ever so gently as if they were crates of eggs. 
I felt a sadness on the stairs as we took down the books, as I hadn't really when we'd carried down the corpse. Carrying the corpse down the stairs, I'd only thought, well, he won't be going down these stairs again. We went away together and spent the night in a dirty little town way out on the water. The hotels were closed, all the fancy places, the big restaurants. It was the off-season. For whatever reason, we didn't bring anything warm enough to wear. We were both freezing. Well, it was a dark, black, starless, moonless night with gusts of wind banging like fists on the windows of the little inn where we'd finally found a place to stay. We walked up a narrow flight of stairs with piles of old towels thrown on the landings. We turned a peculiar bent key in the door. I had to hold on to the doorknob for a moment to keep from fainting. There was no heat in the room at all. What about me, I asked her. What about me? Did you worry about me when you were away? I was thinking, we already are older and wiser. She told me she found my sweater quite nice. Very nice colors. I cried a little. (laughs) Then... And a bit more dribbling, you know. So love apparently was the last thing to go. And I was apparently the last one there to see the end of it. I watched the little flame as it sputtered and spattered, bent its head, and turned into a vague little plume of smoke. Oh well, so that's how it turned out. Who would have guessed... I didn't really want to, but I put my hand around Judy's waist and held her next to me. It was a small gesture which could lead to nothing. My dick lay limply inside my trousers, like a little lunch packed by mother. I decided to untie the rope that served me for a belt, and it turned out there was a fireplace there in the room. We made a fire and sat barefoot in front of it. Outside, the wind swept the boardwalk of sand. It swept the porch. And inside our little room, I tried to hold him, console him. It was like holding on to a nervous little piglet. He kept slipping away. Meanwhile, some awful trick of the night or the mind made me remember him as he'd once been. His confidence, the warmth, the directness of his touch. A burden was lightened now that love was gone. It had always been a difficult word for me. His skin felt like cold clay. I wanted to bathe him, play with him, 
bring him back to life. But that couldn't happen. Almost all of him was dead. In my dream, blue smoke was blowing through the room. The barn door creaked, the cows mooed. I lifted off the ground, feeling very dizzy, dropping ashes faster and faster. The next morning, my head was hot, the old symptoms again. As soon as we got back to the house, I put the last of my cartons into a taxi, and then I was on my way to the apartment I'd found in that very quiet suburb out where Joan lived. The first thing I did there was to buy some white shirts in the local market and a pair of sandals, and almost every morning, long before dawn, while it was still pitch dark, I'd get up, dress, and walk through the little town's empty streets, then down the highway down to the beach. Darkness, the sea, lighthouse, the gulls, the sand thick and wet like black ice cream. Did I judge you? Sure I did. Of course, but never mind. You'll be forgiven by cooler heads. Probably after death, unfortunately, but that's better than never. The effort people make simply amazes me. Just to get up, get dressed. It's not that easy. To feed oneself, to wash the dishes. I can't believe people do it year after year. After the night I saw Judy, as the months passed, I lost my job, but I kept up with my habit of walking through the city. And there was something else that began to happen, where every time that I thought the word I, it sort of echoed or rang out in my mind, and I was troubled by it. The idea of the self was obsessing me now. What were we all constantly talking about? I didn't get it. The self, the self. What was the self? Well, one afternoon... One cloudy, drizzly late afternoon, I was sitting in my apartment writing in my diary, and unfortunately I'd managed to spill my tea, and my hands were wet, and so was my diary, and my clean laundry, and a bunch of forks, and the clothes I was wearing. And as I reached for a rag and started to wipe things up, I suddenly understood it very, very clearly. And the clarity made me queasy, as if a door had been opened and bright light and oxygen had flooded into my brain. As the rag sat soaking in the tea on my lap, I understood that myself was just a pile of bric-a-brac. 
just everything my life had quite by chance piled up. Everything I'd seen or heard or experienced meticulously, pointlessly piled up and saved. A heap of nothing. A heap of nothing which had somehow been compressed to some sort of a form and which had somehow succeeded in coming alive and which quite ridiculously now sort of demanded tribute, declared itself great. And the amazing thing was that I'd gone along with it. We all had. We all had bowed down. We all had worshipped, each one kneeling before his own separate self, each one of us single-mindedly obsessed by his own self's fate, asking desperately, what will happen to this self which is mine? Will the thing I call I achieve magnificence and success? Will the thing I call I be admired? And will my marvelous self finally have the chance to express itself? How idiotic! And how boring! How boring, how boring, how boring, how boring. And was this obsession even sincere? Did we honestly feel that no questions but these were of any interest? I wondered if the show of adoration wasn't perhaps just a bit overplayed, whether all the overacting didn't possibly reveal an element of pretense. And as I thought all this, I felt I saw, standing by the window in the fading light, that very creature, that self which was mine that ludicrous figure whom I'd approached till now with such ostentatious displays of respect, such fervor, groveling, hand-kissing, and tears. And I went up to the figure, the unpleasant little self, and sort of pulled it by the arm and spun it around toward me, and then I threw it on its back and kicked it smartly in the face, and then I sat on top of it, grabbed its neck, and choked it and strangled it and bashed its skull against the floor until it stopped squealing, stopped howling, gasped, and was gone. And what a fucking relief it was. All that endless posturing, the seriousness, the weightiness that I was so sick, sick, sick to death of, I'd never have to do any of it ever again. I would walk the streets like a cheerful ghost, and no one would know my secret. It would really be funny. And, of course, I saw immediately all the implications. I could be anything now, whatever I wanted. If I was a ghost, I could walk through walls. It would be so much easier than knocking on doors and begging someone to let me in. And I thought of something simple to say to people, which they would all understand. I would simply say, I guess I've always really been a lowbrow at heart. 
I guess I've always really been a lowbrow at heart. So I made a new life. And I was so happy because it was so easy. I walked down the street with a different step, a sloppier one. I ate in different places, developed different tastes. I decided years before what foods I would always say that I didn't like. But I like them now. I found a new apartment. And some people might have said it wasn't really very nice. It was smelly, I suppose, but I enjoyed it. There was a window looking out on a courtyard filled with dirt, and children played there, kind of slummy kinds of games. And you know how I'd always treated books with such respect? I would never even write in a book or fold down a page or toss a book casually onto a table. But one morning in my new apartment, I did something funny. At least I thought it was funny. I put a book of poetry in the bathtub and I urinated on it. An interesting experiment. Then I left it in the tub. And then later, when I needed to shit, I hadn't planned this. It just came to me as an idea. Instead of shitting into the toilet, I shat on the book. Just to see, you know, if it could be done. And apparently it was possible, despite what anyone might have told me. So, like a scientist, I noted in my diary that night, yes, the experiment has been a complete success. My diary, by the way, had a pretty good title. I called it Experiments in Privacy. And you know, I'd never been able to stand dogs at all. All the dogs around Howard's house had driven me to the point of paralyzing rage. But it just so happened that I met a boy who was playing in my courtyard. And he gave me his dog because he was leaving the city. And so the dog moved in with me. And it worked out quite well. We really enjoyed each other, as a matter of fact. But then the dog ran around the wrong corner and got shot, and the sweet little love story came to an end. Yes, I guess it came to an end, as so many seem to, in a pool of blood. And things got much, much quieter after that. Well, things were shrinking. Things were shrinking for me. Everything was shrinking. Even when I would try to read the newspaper, after a minute or so, I wouldn't be able to take in any more information. It was like trying to spoon food into the mouth of someone who you happen to notice has suddenly died. So actually, the thing that became most real, most visible for me, was this little collection of actually sex magazines that I'd found one day in a rather nice plastic bag just lying on the street near a puddle. So I spent a lot of time with the somewhat arbitrarily selected group of people who happened to appear in those particular magazines. In fact, I got to know them awfully well. Their foibles, whatever, their idiosyncrasies, poses, gestures, expressions, smiles. And then that, too, was gone one day. One day it went. I looked at the pictures and got absolutely nothing. 
I felt nothing. I saw nothing. The pictures were dead. They were paper. They were nothing. One day, inevitably, buying some flowers, I ran into Joan. And what could she do but invite me to visit? Coffee and buns in her backyard, neat and tidy, but in the brilliant sunshine, I couldn't get warm. I felt soaking wet. The nice maid brought out a blanket and draped it carefully across my shoulders. There was no feeling at all between Joan and me, so I talked about myself. I talked without stopping for two hours about myself, pulling little sounds of understanding out of poor Joan's mouth, the way in prison we pulled plates of food from slots in the doors. God, she was bored, but a few months later she invited me again, and I sat in the kitchen while she cooked a stew. And as she worked away, stirring the big pot, she looked for all the world like a large rodent. Most evenings, I stayed at home, made some food, played some music. But one night, it was not too long before Joan died, one night I actually ventured into the city and I went to see a play, The Stone, by Leibowitz. I must say, I really loved it, and Lars Helbig especially in the role of the doctor. The whole next day, I thought about the play, but the next night, I had dinner with Joan. She'd seen the play the week before and had found it sentimental, and Helbig's acting, she'd found very broad. When she said those things, the performance that was sitting in my memory was poisoned. It died. Every moment of it died on contact with her words. Every moment's hopeful little face turned purple and died. In the days that followed, it was painful to revisit what had become of the memory I'd had. Finally, I emptied the whole evening out of my mind like trash. It was one of those weeks when loose ends apparently were being tied up. You know, once the people who do cause trouble are gone... Then it's time to get the ones who might cause trouble, or the ones who might possibly have been able to cause trouble 20 years ago, or the... (laughs) Anyway, you know the whole story. Eventually, it's a matter of tying up loose ends. Tying up loose ends or cutting them off is just an inevitable part of the process, obviously. And so, of course, is the perennial parallel campaign for the betterment of humanity, or whatever you want to call it, in aid of which we were being treated now every week or so, 
to demonstrations of a very new approach to executions, in which eight or ten people would be taken into a room, seated in these chairs that made their heads bend way back, and fitted up with brightly colored tubes in their mouths, which supposedly did away with them with very little pain in this rather odd ceremony, somehow with music or God knows what. So anyway, as I sat there in my apartment one morning, slowly reading an article in the newspaper about this latest attempt to elevate our moral and aesthetic taste, I happened to look over at one of the photographs accompanying the article, and I noticed that among the bedraggled-looking people sitting in those chairs being fitted with tubes were those rather tiresome moralists whom Howard had found so boring, Tom and Eddie. I quickly scanned the row for their former friend Martin until I somehow remembered that he'd recently been appointed Minister of supplementary tugboat rewiring, or something of the sort. And then I happened to notice that the woman sitting in the very last chair with her head at that rather odd angle was obviously Judy. Well, I was lost. Where was I? Blinded, you know. Like a caught fish jumping about on the floor of a boat. The funny thing was that I was sitting there sweating and sort of panting. Well, more or less as people say when they speak about such moments, I didn't know what to do. (laughs) I mean, literally, what to do. Stand up. Remain seated, stay in, go out. I glanced at my naked friends in the plastic bag because there they were on the table right next to me. I looked at them all in the midst of their playing and their hopeful smiles made me wonder if a more compassionate world might not perhaps come about one day. I went out, it was a black afternoon, and I wandered through the streets, oppressed somehow by a terrible sadness. I had an awful feeling of something left undone. Everywhere I went, the leaves had turned. Traitors! I mean, had they no shame? Oh, well, that had been going on, you know, for quite some time. One noted the usual golds and oranges and browns amidst the green. I went into the park, sat on a bench. I seem to have developed some variety of what I believe is sometimes called hysterical coughing. And then it suddenly hit me that everyone on earth who could read John Donne was now dead. They were all dead. 
as I turn this odd fragment of information around in my brain, I realized that I was the only one left who would even be aware of the passing of this peculiar group, this group which was so special, at least in their own eyes. And my mind went back to a book I'd read when I was very young about a boy who belonged to an ancient tribe in a distant land. And in the course of describing all the customs of the tribe, the book had explained that within the tribe, there were many different subgroups or clans, and that whenever the last surviving member of one of these clans would die, well, there would naturally be no one from their family around to mourn them. So then someone who had known that last survivor, and if there was no one left who had known them well, then it would simply be someone who had known them a little, would be appointed to mourn publicly in a sacred spot the passing of that whole extinguished clan, the designated mourner. And I recalled how the boy in the book had performed that function on a certain occasion, lighting a magnificent sacred fire, weeping and remembering. Well, very close by, in the center of the park, stood that rather dark, cavernous, and always overcrowded cafe, to whose allure all visitors to the park would eventually succumb on even the nicest days, despite the well-known quality of its ambiance and food, and I wandered toward it, went inside, found a table, and ordered a cup of tea from an overworked waitress. Well, along with the tea, and of her own volition, apparently, or maybe it was the policy of the cafe's management— the waitress brought a plate which held a small pastry, a sticky kind of cake whose bottom rested on a bit of paper. And as the waitress left me, I saw my opportunity. First, obviously, I ate the cake. And then I grabbed some matches which sat nearby me, and I glanced around, and I lit the bit of paper. Designated mourner, I said. The bit of paper wasn't very big, but it burned rather slowly because of the cake crumbs. I thought I heard John Dunn crying into a handkerchief as he fell through the floor, plummeting fast through the earth on his way to hell. His name, once said by so many to be immortal, would not be remembered, it turned out. The rememberers were gone, except for me. And I was forgetting. Forgetting his name. Forgetting him. And forgetting all the ones who remembered him. A few patrons and waitresses looked over at me irritably until the fire went out. Then I left the place, and I was back in the park. Would you believe that things were already more peaceful? Well, they were, frankly. I could even feel myself breathing more easily and deeply. 
everyone I saw looked calmer than before. We all were simply doing much better in every way without the presence on the earth of our nerve-jangling friends, the dear departed mournees, if that's the right word. I sat once again on the bench I'd been sitting on before. The sun was going down, and I have to say that the colors in the park were quite extraordinary, almost edible, one would have to say. The air was a kind of rose color, and the light which ran through it was a twinkling yellow. What were we waiting for? The appearance of the Messiah was all this nothing. I was quite fed up with the search for perfection and rather amazed by all that I had. The lemonade stand with its lemonade, the cafe with its irritable customers and staff, the carousel, the squirrels, the birds, the trees. I'm sorry, Howard. Your favorite grove was cut down. But so much remains. This light, so beautiful and warm, was not cut down. The flowers at my feet, with their petals that kiss my ankles like little lips, were not cut down. The trembling air and the trembling sky were not cut down. My sympathy about the loss of your favorite grove is fading out at the end of the day. It's said in the newspaper that there will be fireworks tonight above the carousel. And right nearby, a parade of young dogs, some for sale. I sat on the bench for a very long time, lost, sunk deep, in the experience of unbelievable physical pleasure. Maybe the greatest pleasure we can know on this earth. The sweet, ever-changing caress of an early evening breeze. You've been listening to The Designated Mourner by Wallace Shawn. I'm Andre Gregory, and I directed the production. The actors were Wallace Shawn as Jack, Deborah Eisenberg as Judy, and Larry Pine as Howard. Bruce Odland was the engineer composer, designer, editor, and podcast director. Mastering was by Mark Fuller. 
The original producers were Celeste Barthouse and Scott Rudin. Jennifer Tipton was the co-creator. These podcasts were produced by Mac Rogers and Sean Williams of Gideon Productions.